G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the R slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday, the 30th of January 2024. Now topics this week are the changes to stage three tax cuts. I hear you say, no, we'll make it interesting, I promise you. (laughs) <laughs> and cyber <laughs> sanctions. Cyber sanctions, they've been used for the first time to target the Medibank account. We'll get into that. Of course, we've got our two ticks town talk, and then we'll jump into this week with Australian history with our deep. And we'll finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top questions. And I've got a couple of good questions this week. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up on the last week. Our deep. What's been going on with you? G'day, DK. Uh, flew up to uh, Sydney on Saturday for our well, my wife's nephew's uh, 40th. So that was a, well, it was a good event. It was uh, fun to go up there, good to see some of the family. Uh, Jetstar did cancel our first flight because we just flew up, flew back because uh, we had other things on and we wanted to make sure that we got to see that but also did some some other things we needed to. Uh, but it was it was a good day. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that you sort of think it was it was not that long ago that it would have just been inconceivable that you could even do that. You know, like it wasn't really that long ago that you know, humans couldn't even fly, let alone just sort of like, okay, well, Go up for the day, wear the wear the bit of cost, and um, <laughs> catch up with a family that sort of you know, driven from from uh, uh, you know, all around the place just to be there. So that was good. But I I do sometimes think about some of those things with technology and how lucky we we are at this point in history. Uh, or maybe other people in the future will consider them consider themselves even luckier. But that was good. Now, I'm going to have a little bit of an old man rant about the flight. Because Jetstar cancelled um, our our flight, our, what was it, I think it was a, a 8 o'clock flight or something or other, and chucked us onto a, a Qantas flight. Uh, well, that's an upgrade. Well, it, it, yeah, it was an upgrade. And, in fact, we got into the, the two emergency rows. We couldn't sit together. Um, but, you know. Oh my God, it's only you know an, an hour and a bit on the flying bus, so that was actually a bonus. I was as much as I was cancelled, much as I was sort of like cursing at first, it was actually handled pretty well. Um, so you know they they did all right on that. But what my, what my old man rant was, and I've had this before when I've uh, when I've been lucky enough to score the uh, the emergency exit row, is they leave the instructions on your seat. So you just sort of sit down. Well, I sit down, pick up the instructions, and I read them. And I think I know what the instructions are going to say. I've been in here before, but I feel like there's a, a sort of duty of care to um, to read the instructions for that that seat. But what what got up my nose was I noticed the the bloke who got because I was in the middle, uh, bloke who got to the left and the bloke who got to the right, both just went in, shoved it in the. Um, uh, the the seat pocket in front, and then when the the host, or what you know, what do you call them? Flight attendants? No, not hosts and hosties anymore. 
the flight attendant came around and he was saying, look, you're all prepared to do this. You've all read your instructions. I'm looking around. Everyone's freaking nodding. And I'm thinking, liars, you haven't, you haven't read it at all. You'd have no idea. <laughs> and I said to my wife, who was sitting in the, the row in front, I said, did you read it? And she said, oh, no, not really. I said, did you and everyone else nod along? She said, yep. I said, God. <laughs> I said I'm going to, a, going to have an old man read about this on the on the podcast. It's a, I, I had one, uh, and I won't get two old men ready, but I had one. Uh, this was this was several years ago, and I don't know whether the bloke was with uh, a carer or something. He could he could barely stay awake, or, or I don't know what was wrong with him. He might have, I don't know what his issue was, but. I'm thinking if he's in an emergency exit, he's just going to collapse into the door and block it for everybody. But I don't know. Maybe some people who are in the the aircraft business will just say at the end of the day, it's all just window window dressing. But um, anyway, that's a bit of a, <laughs> that's a bit of an <laughs> old man read on that. I didn't get up to much on Australia Day. Uh, what did you get up to this past week? And did you get up to anything particular on Australia Day? Oh, Australia Day was good. We uh, we went to a friend's place and we had a bit of a bit of a barbecue. I definitely drank too much forex and and <laughs> rum, and but a, a good time was had by all. Um, it's it was it was sort of crappy weather here. We, we've sort of had rain over the last few days, um, but it's been stinking hot. Like on Australia Day, I think it was thirty five, but it was still kind of sprinkling, um, and the humidity was just oppressive. It was just it was very unpleasant. So we're sort of jumping in and out of the pool all throughout the afternoon. Though the pool itself, the water itself, was quite warm, so you couldn't really get away from the heat, unfortunately. But you know that's what. That sort of comes with the territory, uh, living living here in Queensland. Um, but no, other than that, we've had a pretty good week. We, um, I went and gave blood last week, which is something I generally try to do every every few months. Um, and that was again uh, a, a lovely, reasonably painless experience. Uh, and doing doing my. Uh, my good good deed, I guess, for for those couple of months. So, uh, if you haven't given blood before, I know I've mentioned it before in the podcast, um, but you should go and go and have a look at the the Red Cross Red Cross blood donation and go uh, go and give it a go. At least you know, do it once, see how you like it. Um, if it's not too intrusive, like I find it. Uh, go and do it on a regular basis. They definitely need it. Uh, plasma and whole blood. Um, I have a reasonably rare blood type, so I kind of feel obliged to uh, fill up the stocks just in case I ever need it, I guess. What's your um, blood type? I know you've told me once before, but I forgot. It's A negative, which is, right. is pretty rare. Though, you know, uh, there are universal donors, so uh, you can receive blood that isn't your blood type and things like that. So... Um, but no, it's just it's one of those things. I had a, a, a sausage roll and a cookie when I left, and that made me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Oh, and a Gatorade. They gave me a Gatorade, which I thought was pretty good. They normally don't have. Okay. Yeah, they normally don't have, you know, like full drinks there, but I was pretty impressed with that. So hopefully they've got it next time we come. But Oh, oh very good. Nice, nice to sort of have that little treat at the end, isn't it? Mm. 
Yeah, it's not Makes sort of it... the, not the stuff I'd normally have, but it's sort of like, oh, yeah. I, it's guilt, I it. guilt-free been, at yeah. that point, yeah. Yeah, yeah guilt-free. Yeah. <laughs> now, let's kick off, and we've got a, a quick follow-up story from the Optus National Network outage back from November 2023. Optus has revealed thousands more people could not connect to triple zero, which... For our foreign listeners, is our emergency uh, our emergency hotline is triple zero. During last year's network outage on Tuesday afternoon, the telco announced that it had found an additional two thousand four hundred and sixty-eight customers that tried to make triple zero calls from the mobiles that did not connect to emergency services on November eighth of last year. Uh, Optus told a Senate inquiry and the regulator that only 228 customers had failed to get through originally. So, Whoops. Whoops, indeed. So there is a Senate inquiry that's going on at the moment uh, into this. And at the moment, nothing too juicy has come out. But we did just want to add on to this um, how, you know, dire this probably problem was the fact that it wasn't just 228 customers that failed to get through to triple zero it was 2468 which is not an insignificant amount of people uh that had to get through and and they didn't elaborate because of course they can't for privacy reasons whether or not those those customers uh were for medical emergencies or things like that but you generally don't call triple zero if you're having a good time so no no Suffice to say that 170 of them haven't um, responded to the follow-up. Well, they're supposed to say. <laughs> unfortunately, I was I was trying to find those numbers uh, it, to see if anyone genuinely, uh, you know, deceased because yeah. of of the inaction, but couldn't find anything. They they're sort of not releasing that information. Um, but out of two thousand four hundred and sixty eight, it seems that it's there's definitely a non-zero chance that that that's happened. They also mentioned that. When something like this happens, the telco is required, like legally required to do a welfare check to follow up. Um, and they had wow. done that on those original 228 customers. Uh, however, this new uh, <laughs> two 2,200 odd uh, haven't had any sort of welfare check since. So, yeah, we're not really sure what's going on there, but... If anything more juicy comes out from this uh, Optus Senate inquiry, we will keep you up to date. Uh, Are you a bit, and if, a bit surprised at the uh, – sorry, finish that bit. I jumped in. I was just going to move on, but that's all right. Continue. Oh, yeah, I, I thought you were – just what – were you a bit surprised hearing those numbers, and now that's just Optus, that that many people – and that's only Optus, so I'm – guessing it's reasonable to extrapolate that there's at least that many people for Telstra are calling triple O in a single day? Um, I feel like it it seems really high, but when you consider what there's 26 million Australians, you know, I think I think this outage affected 10 million or something like that. When you sort of, you know, when you play the statistics, 2,400. Mm. Actually, now that I think about it, 
228 seems very low from their original estimate, uh, considering the outage went for, for several hours. The mm. fact that 2,468 customers that tried to call didn't connect, I'd imagine there were probably a number of them that did. Because as far as I understand, in the emergency services calls in Australia will connect from any network from your device. So if yeah, you're out right. of range or, or anything like that, you can still get through from another network. Um, so it, I know that number seems pretty high, but I guess when you put it uh, all together, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I, I would imagine there was probably a lot more than that nationwide. I think, like I said, I think the, the outage was about 10 million Australians were affected by it. So um, it's, you know, 2000 seems almost low at that point. Hmm. Yeah. Look, that's that's a fair that's a fair point. So yeah, I was just thinking that you know it's, it means about five thousand. But you're right when you compare it to, um, uh, when you compare it to the the population. But yeah, they're all answered by one guy too. He's yeah. very busy. Yeah, it's very busy. Very busy. <laughs> <laughs> now let's let's move on to the changes to the stage three tax cuts. Um. You've probably been hearing all about this over the last couple of weeks, so let's get in. Let's find out. We're trying to not go into too many numbers because we understand this is a uh, uh, an auditory medium. It's an uh, uh, an audio show, and rattling off a bunch of numbers is not very entertaining. So the good news up front, if you're a taxpayer in Australia, you will be paying less tax from the 1st of July. The federal government is has committed to shifting tax cuts that were legislated in 2019 to provide more benefits to low and middle income workers. However, it does break an election promise to not touch the stage three tax cuts, and that will mean the highest income earners will get half the benefit that they were due to receive. But every worker will see a little bump to their pay slip from July 1st, 2024. Of course, this is stage three of a three-stage package of tax cuts that were legislated in 2019. And the opposition, uh, (laughs) some very vocal opposition (laughs) members and much of the Murdoch media, as well as other outlets, would like to remind everyone that stage one and two were for the benefit of the low and middle income workers. So the changes to stage three now is apparently completely unforgivable. However, a little bit of history. We need to remember stage one, there was a threshold increase for the 37% tax bracket from 87,000 to 90,000, which didn't really affect very many people, actually very few people. And it also introduced the low middle income tax offset. So this was a tax offset. It was roughly $1,200 and it was a temporary benefit and it ended in 2022. So if you're listening to this and you did your tax return and you went a couple of years ago and you went, hang on, why did my refund not end up what I thought it was going to be. And it was probably because of the lower middle income tax offset had finished uh, in 2022. Mm. Stage two offered a little more benefit to lower and middle income earners with a bump 
of the 32.5% tax threshold to $37,000 uh, from sorry from $37,000 to $45,000 and it also increased the 37% threshold up to 120,000. So there were quite a lot of lower and middle income workers that sort of got a bump there and paid a little bit less tax. But where I'm sitting looking at this the Murdoch media and the LMP position Really, that lower and middle income workers have already benefited from stage one and two, in my mind, is a little bit stretched. Uh, But let's move. You know, what are the new changes? What's all the kerfuffle about? The new changes are, and I'm going to apologize because I'm just going to read them out because there's no good way to do this, (laughs) but you'll pay no tax up to $18,200. That hasn't changed. You'll pay 19% tax for every dollar earned between 18,200 and up to 45. So that's a bit of a drop. You'll pay 30% tax from 45,000 to 200,000 and you'll pay 45% tax any dollar earned above $200,000. So in every, in other words, every tax bracket is getting a break. But the people earning over $200,000 a year are not getting as big of a break as they were before. That's that's it. That's the big change. That's what all this kerfuffle is about. If you're earning over $200,000 a year, you're suddenly not getting the full benefit that you were previously promised. Other than that, everybody else is better off. And in this economy, I doubt that there's going to be very many lower and middle income earners that are shedding a tear for these <laughs> slightly better off. Because remember, they're still better off than they currently are, but just not as good off as they could have been, uh, these high income earners, you know. Uh, bloody yeah. crocodile tears as far as I'm concerned. Huh. Yeah, look, I know. It's a, it's a good populist move by elbow, but it is also a broken promise. But look, let's face it. Uh, if our world, if your world is is crushed by a politician breaking promises and changing positions, then it means you've only been taking note of politics for less than 17 hours. Uh, it's just... Yeah. Pa- it's just par for the course. Look, the, the dollar amounts are obviously... Meaningful, like if you're just plucking it, plucking a figure from random. If your uh, income is sixty thousand, then under Labor's once you're going to be getting another one thousand one hundred and seventy nine dollars. So you know that that in a year is nothing to be sneezed at. You know, I think a lot of us would be happy having that extra bit in there. Uh, but in terms of what is taken. Those are not actually meaningfully um, huge numbers. And the thing that I find interesting about this debate is it's a a classic example of the Overton window being placed in such a way that the red and blue teams are arguing about these small percentage differences in the tax rates but there's no meaningful discussion about, you know, do we abolish taxes? Do we radically change how they're calculated? All that's completely out of the question. The debate has just been constricted to a few percentages either way. And I find that as someone who's really not a fan of um, 
the, the government taxation. I find that really frustrating. Uh, look, I'll, I'll take a cat tax cut where I can get it, so that's a bit of a win. But yeah, you know, I'm also aware of the game being played by both major parties and and the establishment that backs them. And the other thing, which it seems to come up every time, legitimately, uh, that we have these you know fiddling around with the the tax brackets, and that is bracket creep for. Um, for, for people, you, know, you, you put in these uh, amounts that which generally don't tend to be uh, indexed. They don't tend to be generously in favour of of people um, and, and income as their income is growing, and you start to get people you know, having portions of their uh, income moving up into the next bracket, and. It feels like it feels like with bloody credit card companies. You now, when the you've got the credit card companies, and I, I don't know what they're charging at the the moment. Uh, it's, it's always yes, sixteen twenty twenty five. Don't what 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 what's the average credit card rate at the moment? Do you know? Um, I'll Google it. Keep talking. I'll Google yeah, okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So it reminds me of credit card companies and uh, and banks where you've got. When they're taking it out of your your, your pocket, and the rate changes in fra- in favour of the consumer, it's just like pulling teeth. It's so difficult to get them to to uh, to, to start sort of giving you money back. But as soon as there's an opportunity for them to legitimately, I'm saying with air quotes, uh, mm. increase your rate, then they they just can't get onto it quick enough. Yep. And, and I find that with this uh, these these tax brackets. Yeah, it starts to you leave it in there long enough because the longer you leave people moving up into the next bracket, the more tax you get, the more money yes. you get to to spend. That's it. Uh, did you happen to see what the current rate is? So the rates are sort of between they start the quote unquote low rates are about twelve percent, but most okay. of them are, are sitting around. 14, 15, up to 20, uh, which I would actually say is lower than it has been historically. Quite well, often it's, right. it's well into the 20s. So, hmm. Okay. Look, <laughs> I, I, I suppose look, I've got the credit card, but try it, but run it with um, uh, just just paying it off. Um, and fortunately, my wife does most of the paperwork in the house, thank God, because if it was left to me, it'd be <laughs> a <shit> fight. <laughs> um, yeah, so that bracket creep for for me uh, th- that remains a problem as as well. And yeah, look, keeping that um, re- restoring the the thirty seven percent tax bracket um, that sort of makes that bracket creep potentially a worse problem for for middle Australians, which tends to be where a lot of this burden ultimately ends up falling. Um, what about you? What do you think about the the numbers and the the changes and Albo's uh, about face? I don't have a problem with him uh, having a go. I think it, I think it was always on the cards that this was going to change. Uh, he never supported it originally. I don't believe, uh, and uh, this isn't surprising to me at all. Um, you know, he, he politically, he wants to show himself as uh, a friend to the working class, uh, which is very much the people that this is aimed at helping. Um, 
just just for some, I know I said we wouldn't go into the numbers too much, but if you're earning one hundred and sixty thousand or more, your tax refund next year has basically dropped from what it potentially could be. So if you're earning two hundred thousand, you could have expected a, a, a reduced tax of nine thousand and seventy five dollars. Now you're going to expect expect to see 4500. So the every literally everyone is still better off. It's just that the wealthiest Australians are not as well off as they previously were going to be, but it also means that more not as well off Australians are going to be slightly better off. So I look at this and go this completely makes sense that for a politician like Albanese, he's going to go and do something like this. This is a hugely uh, easy political win for him to do because the people in those high tax brackets generally probably aren't his voters anyway. Uh, and so it's probably not going to really hurt him too much in the polls, but it's probably going to win him a lot of favor. And of course, we're seeing... The, the LMP, the usual talking heads are all screaming about broken promises and you can't do this and da-da-da-da-da. Um, but, <laughs> you know, you look at it and just go... Which they've never done. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's just politics really is what it is when I look at this and just go, it's just politics. I do, I do like that the... It's basically become the... the the tax brackets have all kind of squashed. So we've gone from four to three. And I think that's better. But you're right. There is no indexation on these tax brackets. They have increased uh, a little bit from what they were before. Uh, mm. But you're right. If you are if you were earning... Uh, basically, if you weren't in that 30% tax bracket before... Um, if you were above that, you're basically getting no more. There's no tax incentive for you, really, other than we've slightly shifted it down and getting a little, little bit more of a refund. So for those high income earners, which, again, they're not the biggest. What do we say? They're about 5% of the population or something like that. So they're not a huge cohort, but it potentially is a massive amount of money. So. I can kind of see how they're sort of trying to balance. Because, of course, at the end of the day, you've got to remember that the, the federal government is mostly funded by income taxes. So, yes. yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's the bottom line of the budget is really where most of this taxes goes. So the government sort of has this weird dichotomy where they don't want to charge people too much money because that's obviously politically uh, unfavorable. But their coffers are filled by the tax money that they that they're charging people so it's the sort of weird balancing act and i'm gonna i'm quite interested to see how the budget in may is gonna look with this um coming online because i do feel like this is probably gonna have a bit of a a bit of a big bump in their uh, plans for budget surplus and everything like that. Mm. But look, that's yet to be seen. They've obviously got the figures and they've worked it out and they reckon this is how they can do it. Um, but I yeah. think the budget is going to get squashed a lot more because they're basically giving tax cuts to everyone. So that money <laughs> comes off the bottom line. So it'll be interesting I'm to see. I'm sure it'll get, I'm sure it will get spun 
appropriately. I have now. Look, this might be last uh, last week or so. I've been really paying a lot of attention to the the intricacies of the political side, but I'm not really hearing a lot about this from the Greens. Now, am I am I missing out on? Have I missed something obvious, or what? What have you been? Have you been hearing much from commentary from from that side of the fence? I, you know what? Now that you say that, I too haven't heard anything. I'm sure they've made some noises and they've yeah. probably agreed with it, but probably gone. It's not going too far. We need to tax the rich more or some crap like that. Um, I haven't heard anything, which is kind of unusual because that's. Ooh. And I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up. Um, so oh, God, no, I was worried it might be just me, but I'm thinking, just there's nothing in my head that's that's got nothing in my head. Nothing seems to have caught my attention about it. Yeah, no, I haven't. I literally haven't heard it at all. But again, I would I would think they are. I know originally they wanted to abolish the stage three tax cuts altogether. Like they just didn't want it at all. Um, that was kind of their platform for for a while. Um, but I don't know if that's still their position where they're like, just get rid of it. We don't need it. Da 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 da. Uh, cause the, their whole angle previously was, uh, you know, the, 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 the benefits are for the wealthy, the wealthiest of Australians. So therefore, it, you know, that's their mm. whole, whole political ideology, right? Tax the rich and all that. So I wonder if, uh, they've sort of, Turned and agreed with it now, or uh, don't know. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, just interesting. Let's move on. It's time for our two ticks town talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. All today's two ticks town talk is about two well-known Australian treasures. One's under the ground, and one is in the sky. So come with us, dear listeners, as we travel to Victoria and visit the town of Mulligal. Now, Mulligal is located 200k, 124 miles northwest of Melbourne, and 60k, 37 miles west of Bendigo. It's basically a ghost town now. used to be a thriving gold mining uh, village. And it's located at uh, what's a corner known as the Golden Triangle, which has produced more gold nuggets than any other area in Australia. The other corners are with uh, Tanagala and Dunnelly. So there's a few houses, most of which are in ruins, but there's about 200 people living in the district. And it's thought it got its name from Mulligulk, which is a Wemba Wemba Aboriginal word meaning wooded hill. I'm not sure if that's a stretch on this, because I I looked at looked it up. I thought oh Wemba 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 and looked at that language group, and it seemed a lot more a lot further north um, than this. But what do I know? Uh, so I'm going to throw in an apparently in there, and regular <laughs> listener regular <laughs> listeners will know what that means when I say apparently. <laughs> it could be bullshit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, as I said in the introduction, what, taught, what caught my eye about Mulligal was two well-known uh, Australian treasures. So, let's go underground for the first one. 
On February 5th, 1869, a Cornish miner, John Deason, uh, who was born on an island of Tresco, uh, had been prospecting the area for seven years and was working in a bulldog gully near Mulligal. So while he was searching about the roots of a tree, Deason discovered only about two and a half centimetres below the surface, a gold nugget. Tried to get the thing out, but he broke his pick handle trying to lever it out of the oh. ground. Yeah, yeah. What, oh. a, what a problem yeah, to have. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually got it out with a, a crowbar. So his partner, Richard Oates, um, who also came from Tresco, they concealed the nugget until dark. And then when they, uh, then they, with Oates, uh, he dug it out and took it home in a dray. Uh, now there's signed edge at the, the gold fell. It says, later that afternoon, the nugget was placed in their dray and taken down the hill to Deacon House. The gold was stained black by ironstone deposits and was mixed with a large quantity of quartz. After placing the nugget in the fire, the gold expanded and the quartz became brittle and, gr- brittle and loose. When the nugget cooled, 26 kilograms of quartz was prized off and later crushed in a local battery belonging to Mr. Edward Endley. Uh, the two then held a party during which they revealed their find to, find to the assembled guests. Don't go home, boys, said Deason. That's solid gold and I want you to stay the night and escort it to the bank at Dunnerley tomorrow. So the nugget itself had a um, gross weight of 109 kilograms. Wow. Um, yeah. Now that Holy was before, moly. I know. That was before they took out off the, um, the, uh, the, the quartz and the other, other things. So its trimmed weight was 78 kilograms. That's still incredible. That's a shirtload of gold. So it's, that's 2,520 troy ounces. Uh, and 230 pounds for people going along will stick with not – there's a lot of numbers with this one, but we won't be going through all of them. Um, and its net weight, and I'm not sure the difference between trimmed weight and net weight. Frustratingly, I couldn't get – I couldn't find details on that. But anyway, its net weight was 72.02 kilograms. This nugget became known as the Welcome Stranger Nugget, and it's the world's largest gold nugget. There's another one called the Welcome Nugget, but this one, the Welcome Stranger, is the world's largest. Um, so it was taken taken to Donnelly, where it had to be broken on an anvil on the by the local blacksmith because it was too big to fit. <laughs> Another problem to have: it was too big to fit on the scales of the bank, so they had to chop it into three bits. Um, no photos, unfortunately, of the the original nugget. Uh, it was worth £9,553 at the time. I, mean, I did my calculation that at today's price of approximately uh, 3056 per troy ounce of gold, the welcome stranger would be valued at close to $7 bucks. Wow. Imagine just tumbling on that two and a half centimetres below the, the surface. That's just... Um, that's just amazing. So De- look, Deason returned to Mulligal, and his descendants are still in the area. Oates went back to Cornwall, 
uh, but got married and returned to live out his life at Dunnerley, which uh, is the other town uh, making the three points of the that gold triangle. So that was that was the first treasure. So we moved from underground and upwards to the other well-known Australian treasure in the sky. And this starts with the birth of a bloke called John Flynn in Mulligal on 25th of November, 1880. He was known, Flynn was known for his motto, if you've got something, if you start something worthwhile, nothing can stop it. And as we'll see, he embodied that motto to the, the full. He'd uh, Flynn had first heard romantic tales about Australia's outback when his father's business partners mounted an unsuccessful venture into the, the far north of the country, but it sort of sparked up his imagination. Uh, in 1907, he commenced a four-year course in divinity at Melbourne Uni and uh, graduated and was ordained as a minister of the Presbyterian Church in 1911. Throughout his training, though, he kept up developing an interest in working in the outback, and he helped other Presbyterian ministers uh, with missionary work in rural and remote areas. Uh, with another minister, Flynn and Barber published The Bushman's Companion, which was a, a popular book of info and hints for people in the bush. Uh, in 1911, Flynn arrived at the tiny uh, Smith of Dunesk mission over 500 k's north of Adelaide. And at Beltana, he saw the first saw firsthand the rigours of outback life and learnt there that there is basically no medical care available to inland residents and travellers. So it, he was commissioned to prepare a report, report for life in the, the Northern Territory for the Presbyterian um, Church. And after a conference in Melbourne and Sydney, he travelled by ship to Darwin, checked out a whole lot of places like Catherine, Bathurst Island, and that Adelaide River researching his paper. and included proposals for inland inland missions, how they could get uh, care to them or the care that they needed to get. And they appointed Flynn, the head of a new organisation called the Australian Inland Mission. But what was a crucial turning point uh, in Flynn's drive to provide medical care to the outback was in 1917, he received an inspirational letter from a bloke called Lieutenant Clifford Peel. Um, he was a Victorian medical student who had a, like a strong interest in aviation. So this was a young air airman and ended up being a, a war hero. He suggested to Flynn, why don't you use planes to bring medical help to the outback? Um, uh -huh. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I was. I knew the penny would drop at some stage. Uh, unfortunately, for bloody um, Clifford Peel, he died at twenty. He was shot down in France and died at twenty-four years, and he never knew that his letter became the blueprint for the creation of the Flying Doctor Service. So that's why. That's why I deliberately use the term one of Australia's uh, treasures. Uh, Flynn all, and things started coming together. So Flynn also met a bloke called Hudson Fish, who was a founder of Qantas. 
1927, 28, a couple of things happened following on from these these meetings a few years before. Uh, a longtime supporter, H.V. McKay, left a large uh, request bequest for an aerial experiment, and Qantas and the Aerial Medical Service, the one that later became the Flying Doctor Service, signed an agreement to operate an, am- an aerial ambulance from Cloncurry in Queensland. And listeners may recall that uh, DK had covered Cloncurry in a previous uh, Two Ticks town talk um, with yep. the, the birth of Qantas. So it's nice to have a tie, a tie in there. So the first pilot for the Royal Flying Doctor Service took off from Concurry in 17th of May 28, is flying a single-engine timber and fabric biplane named Victory, and that was leased by Qantas for two shillings per mile flown. And the first flying doctor uh, was a doctor who's on that flight, obviously, uh, was Dr. Kenyon St. Vincent Welsh. The the first pilot, Arthur Affleck, uh, had no navigate had no navigational aids, no radio, and only a compass. And he navigated oh. by landmarks such as fences, rivers, dirt roads, or just wheeled tracks and telegraph lines. He also flew in an open cockpit, fully exposed to the weather behind the doctor's cabin. And airstrips at that that stage were basically just a bit of a, you know, a, a clay pan uh, paddock. So they weren't even necessarily prepared. So <laughs> that's pretty. I thought that was pretty impressive. So they normally they normally did the flights during the day. Though they try they did some um, night flight flights in case there was in cases of extreme emergency. And we're starting it too. They also carried extra fuel and created fuel dumps along the way. So they created a network of um, of fuel to give them ranges between certain certain strategic outstations. Um, that the Havilland that they were flying by then could carry a pilot and four passengers at a cruising speed of eighty miles per hour for five hundred to six hundred miles. So it all started taking uh, flight. It's inaugural year. They changed from the aerial medical service to the flying doctor service in 1942 and the Royal Flying Doctor Service in 1955. Uh, So in that inaugural year, they flew 50 flights and 26 destinations and treated 225 patients. So Flynn's dream had become a reality. Uh, which was, imagine him very pleased with that and went back to his motto. So on that, um, it it was also interesting, another tie in there that, you know, look, it's one thing to have a flying doctor service, but how did people in the outback in 1928 uh, say, look, we've actually got an issue here. We need to send someone out. You know, you've uh, you've got to be able to communicate. So there was a a bloke. Smoke signals. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, you, you know this. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there was a, a bloke. Uh, why did I not get his first name? Traeger. I'll put that. Sorry, I'll put that in the um, reference. Must have been as I was editing it. Uh, yes, uh, 
I can't remember Traeger's first name, unfortunately. But uh, this bloke was an inventor, and in 1928, he developed a pedal-powered radio. So it was a floor-mounted generator driven with bicycle pedals, powering a radio transceiver which could use Morse code. Following station, following year, a base station was established at Concurry, and the first pedal wireless was installed at Augustus Downs Station, 150 miles out of town. Uh, the first transmission was made only a couple, only a year later, by Gertrude Rothbury, the manager's wife, to Traeger's assistant uh, at Concurry. So over uh, over the next eight years, Traeger continued to manufacture and improve the sets. Um, they installed them at homesteads and hospitals and missions and the bases of the aerial medical service. And by the 1950s, there were literally hundreds of these Traeger sets in use. Um, there was a comment there on the, the site. Betty Merchant from Eremonga, Eremonga, Eremonga remembers using one, and she says they were monumentally beneficial in helping with the isolation that came with living in the outback. And all around, they had what they called the galah sessions. And every morning, people would come on and have a yak, and people would share stories or news. What were your kids up to? Was there any rain? Or if somebody had gotten lost or anything, it was just a general gossip session. So it was interesting that in combination with this, just how these communications opened up uh I opened up the 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 outback to a whole lot of people. Um, yeah, no, it's funny cool. having a, yeah, funny having a galah session. Like, if you're not from Australia and don't know galahs, we've got these. They're actually beautiful birds. I mean, there's there's plenty of them. Not everyone likes them, but they're got a, a like a beautiful coral pink, dusty coral pink um, uh, breast and uh, grey plumage. Really bloody noisy birds. And it's it's uh, of course they make so much noise. That's why these things were being called a, a galah session. Uh, it wasn't just health and isolation that was improved in the bush. And Traeger's daughter Anne Smallwood discussed how the pedal-powered radio also greatly improved education. Uh, she said, "I can remember one day when he was really excited because he wanted to show us the school of the air." sets that he'd just invented and they'd been roaring success he saw that as a huge plus that the kids of the outback could have access to some sort of normal education and that gave traeger a real buzz as you can imagine so that was another flow-on benefit you could basically had kids could get an education and still be on the the property so traeger was incredibly humble um he wasn't proud of it. It was just something he did, and he was pleased to do it. He didn't see it as anything particularly wonderful. He just saw it as an opportunity. In 1944, he was awarded an Order of the British Empire, and uh, his daughter said it was years before he even told his family that he got the award. So, yeah, just one of those blokes. So his sets went across two-thirds of the Australian continent, covering more than 5 million square kilometres, and are now recognised as a fundamental element in the inception of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Um, and lots of flow-on lots of flow on benefits. And there was one other one associated with this that, because there was a whole lot of these interesting little stories. So I know this is a touch longer, but I reckon it was pretty interesting. 
this was um, there's a number of other yeah, remarkable people involved in there, but we'll finish up with a lady called Robin Miller Dix, who is known as the Sugar Bird Lady. So she's uh, parents were Dame Mary Durack and Aviator Horry Horry Miller. So she was sort of born with flying in her, her blood. Uh, she trained as a nurse at Royal Perth Hospital while at the same time got her commercial pilot's license, which was a bit unusual in those days for, for women, as you can imagine. Uh, so it's the 1960s, and surprisingly, despite numerous interviews, no one would employ a female pilot. Uh, because it was just not considered an appropriate career for a woman, regardless of how qualified she was. So she basically said, look, bugger you, take it into my own hands. So in 67, there was a second polio um, strike to hit Western Australia. So although the vaccine had been around for a decade, uh, distributing it to rural communities in the state's north was like a big challenge that no one was solving. So she seized the opportunity borrowed enough money to buy a plane, went to the government with a, an offer that she would fly her own aircraft solo and administer 37,000 doses of the polio, polio vaccine herself. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wow. So, oh, yeah, exactly. That was, that's what I thought. I thought, God, I've got to include this one as too. So, look, for people in rural communities, her – presence was understandably life-changing so not only did she help eradicate polio but she arrived from the skies administering each oral vaccine with a, a sugar lump to disguise its bitter taste so throughout kimberley and pilbara robin became known as the sugar bird lady so that's why that name stuck with her throughout her life she didn't have a long life unfortunately she was in her late 30s when she died of of cancer but my god what a contribution so she'd had she'd had forty three thousand air miles under her belt, um, a unique rapport with people living in WA's most remote regions. So the Royal Flying Doctor said, "Service said, well, God, we want to offer you a job." So, and unlike the majority of her predominantly male colleagues, Robin could pilot it, and she was a nurse. She often flew solo. And she serviced her own aircraft. Oh. <laughs> Talk about a one-man army. Holy moly. <laughs> or in this case, a one-woman one army, isn't it? Oh. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was that was another impressive person. So, look, that, that concludes our visit to Mulligal, Victoria, this week's Two Ticks Town Talk and home of two of Australia's well-known treasures. Fantastic. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great story. I loved it. I really, really got into to that one. And those those couple of other I mean, you know, Flynn by himself was um impressive enough. But you you, th you throw in um you throw in the development of that that pedal powered um radio and that nice little twist in there with you know, the sugar sugar birth lady. And saving polio. It's, ah, it's, it's just a great it's story. It's just all so around. much. And there's remembering uh, this all began with the world's largest nugget of gold. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. Yeah. There's gold, <laughs> as you said, there's gold in the ground, there's gold in the people, there's gold in the air. It's everything's yeah. golden coming out of uh, Monogol. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah, there you go. Okay, cyber sanctions used for the first time to target the Medibank hacker. The Australian government has announced sanctions against a Russian man, Alexander Emokov. Do you know what? I don't care if I mispronounce that because (laughs) this guy's a bit of a scumbag. Uh, And his role in the Medibank private data breach also <laughs> listeners need to remember that i was affected by this as well so um in the first time the very first time this government has used its cyber sanctions framework which was legislated in 2021 to apply financial punishments to people involved in significant cyber attacks the personal information of 9.7 million medibank customers myself included, including names, dates of birth, Medicare numbers, and sensitive private health information, was stolen in 2022. Much of it was published on the dark web. The government said that the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Federal Police had identified Ermakov as responsible for the attack. The sanctions make it a criminal offence to provide the man with any assets, including cryptocurrency, and any money through ransomware payments. And it's punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Mm. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill said, and I quote, Medibank, in my view, is the single most devastating cyber attack we have experienced as a nation. We all went through it. Literally millions of people having their personal data about themselves, their family members, taking, taken from them and cruelly placed online for others to see. These people are cowards. They're scumbags. They hide behind technology. The Australian government is saying that when we put our minds to it, we'll unveil who you are and we'll make sure you're accountable. End quote. The Deputy Prime Minister Richard Marles said Australia was the first to name Ermakov globally and this would have a very significant impact on him. I don't know that it will, but <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll agree to disagree with uh, the Deputy Prime Minister there. The Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, as quoted before, also issued strong advice to businesses not to pay ransomware to alleged cyber criminals, saying that this did not guarantee the sensitive data would be removed, but it makes Australia a more attractive target for criminal groups. Shadow Home Affairs Minister James Patterson welcomed the cyber sanctions and praised the work of law enforcement and officials, but said that the government had been too slow to act. There's always got to be a but with when we come to, to politics. <laughs> you did the right thing, but you did it too slowly. <laughs> what do you think about this? Do you think this, this works? Is this going to make a difference to uh, Alexander Aramakov? Uh, I think it'll make pretty much bugger all difference to him. I have very low expectations that this will actually achieve anything. I think, look, it'll, it'll probably have some... Um, Oh, I don't know, it'd probably have some effect somewhere, but I feel like um, the reach of this legislation only applies to Australians. I'm not sure how many Australians are bloody chomping at the bit to send this bloke some some crypto and letters of 
support, it doesn't change anything worldwide. Look, I mean, you have to, well, I'm not, I was going to say you have to do something. Um, I can sort of see the reasoning for it. Uh, I'll be interested to see, though, how these powers will continue to be used now that the seal's been broken. Because it's it's like someone smashed the uh, emergency container and pulled out the hammer and has used it for the first time. Mm. And there'll be people sitting there thinking, you know, I could use that hammer for something else. That's just how they work. Oh, so I, straight <laughs> away you've gone, how can this be abused? <laughs> because I can see the application, but it's inevitable that there'll be unintended consequences. So yeah, there's the devil's always in the details. I mean, what powers are implied and are going to be given in order to enforce these sanctions? Uh, for example, well, Blake's an asshole. I'm not 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 shedding not shedding any tears for him at all. And I hope hope it does um, turn out to be to be difficult for him. But you know, he's one person. We're talking about um, the bigger problem being the, the the government here in Australia, in my point of view. So, what powers are implied, and how are they going to be? What's going to be given to them? Uh, for these sanctions. So as I said, for example, uh, will it be necessary to monitor crypto transactions? You can just see how their minds work in this thing. Say, so, well, we can't, no one can give him crypto. So someone's going, so a, a bureaucrat's going to be sitting there saying, well, how do we know someone's giving them crypto? And someone will say, well, if we see this, that, and the other, say, well, we've got to get a committee for that. We've got to get a task force for that. And under the legislation, we're permitted to enforce these sanctions. Therefore, we don't need to be passing any new laws or that. We just expand this legislation and expand the power, expand our interpretation under this and just grant ourselves extra powers. And of course, you get something like that and immediately you'll have something like the the ATO and the federal police and the um, secret squirrels say, hmm, we could use that information as, as well. And that, to me, is a, a readily conceivable way in which this could be abused, just as a single, a single one. So, yep, you're right, TK. I did mean, immediately leap to that. How could it be abused? I can't help it. <laughs> so I should also add, and... Something I didn't mention before, but after the sanctions were announced, the UK and US, uh, who, who had uh, previously been involved with the investigation on this hacking, uh, also uh, created sanctions against him. Uh, the first time ever that there's been a coordinated effort between the UK, US and Australia um, against an individual. Uh, it, do I think this is because that individual is Russian? Very possibly. <laughs> um, it, it's quite convenient, you know what I mean, uh, where we can point to the, the quote-unquote bad guys and go, it was them. Um, as far as I'm aware, the Russian government hasn't publicly responded at all. Um, Irmakov was approached 
by a number of news agencies. Uh, and as far as I know, he denies that he had any involvement. Well, of course he would. Like, yeah. you know. Uh, we also don't know how they came to the conclusion. Like, we don't know how the investigation, or as far as I can find, we don't know how the investigation actually pinned it to him. So part of me is kind of a little bit skeptical mm-hmm. about, I'm not saying he didn't do it, but maybe his involvement wasn't as big as, you know, it can't be just one guy that's doing doing this, or maybe it can. I don't know. I don't know because we haven't seen the, the nitty-gritty details. No, but. There's, no there's no real trans, transparency, and, and it's convenient that the, you know, the other two big members of the Five Eyes are yeah, all in favour of uh, these, these sanctions and extra powers. Yeah. Look, and we do know that there are a couple of countries, a handful of countries around the world that very much turned a blind eye to sort of cyber criminals. Uh, Russia absolutely is one of them. Uh, We've also seen lots of scams and things coming out of India and Pakistan. Uh, The government definitely... I don't want to say that those governments turn a blind eye to it, but it kind of happens under their nose, if you know what I mean. Um, And, of course, North Korea notoriously has been doing that sort of thing for for many, many years. Um, So this isn't too surprising um, that we're sanctioning individual Russians like we have before about Ukraine and things like that. I just – part of me feels like it is a convenient scapegoat. I'm not saying that – you know, it's not legitimate or anything like that. I just feel mm. like it, it. It sort of fits the narrative, if you know what I mean. Oh, it's um, a good. It's a good. A good villain to to yeah. skip to skip over the, the the obvious questions of well, how the hell was your the data so poorly exposed in the first place? You know, it's uh, exactly. It, it's it's good to have. Don't look at us. Look at him. He's a baddie. And and in my case. Uh, I actually was previously a Medibank private customer. I was no longer a Medibank private customer and hadn't been for many, many years, but apparently they still have my data for no good reason. They just had it. And so, you know, as much as we can point to him and go, he's the bad guy that did this, and it's like, sure. Um, But blame does not lie completely at his feet. Uh, And this goes back to the discussion we had about the Medibank at the time, we obviously covered this story uh, and the vast majority of the blame for this uh, is at Medibank. You know, if I had a, a 70 kilo golden nugget uh, <laughs> and just sitting out on my front porch and someone came and stole it, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. But come on, you know, you leave it there for the taking and people are going to take it. So, yeah. Um, this is this is definitely look. This is one of these things that it, it has affected me personally, so it is very frustrating. Um, but I don't think this is really going to affect him. You know, it, it, is this going to affect him if he tries to come to the West? Like, if he wants to move to or go to visit, he wants to go to Disneyland or something like that. Sure, he won't be able to do that anymore. Um, but is this a huge loss for someone like this? Probably not. You know, this is probably someone that's not who's very comfortable where they are, and they're not traveling the world and doing things like this anyway. So, is this going to affect them long term? I don't know. That's the question. I don't know. I don't think so. I hope it does, so that these sorts of individuals think twice uh, in the future. But the reality is, I don't think it will. 
No, look, it, it would be great if he could if he could become a uh, you know a, a poster child for the effectiveness of this sort of sanctioning legislation, but uh, I don't imagine this bloke is stupid to be able to do that. I reckon he's got some cunning, and I reckon when you put someone like him up against you know a behemoth like the uh, the, the governments, uh, I'm not going to be betting heavily against him. No, I think that's a good place to leave it. Let's move on. Tell me what happened this week in Australian history. Okay, this week in Australian history, we're covering the 24th to the 31st of January. January 24th in 1903, the Goldfields Water Supply Scheme, piping water from Perth to the Goldfields of Coolgardie, was uh, completed, and th- th- that was that was a pipeline, a dam project that delivered potable water from uh, Mundaring Weir in Perth to communities in Western Australia's eastern goldfields, um, particularly Coolgardie and Kalgoorlie. So the project was commissioned in 1896, completed in 1903, and it still operates to today, supplying water. Wow. To, yeah, yeah, that surprised me as well. 100,000 people depend on it for water, 33,000 uh, households, as well as mines and farms and other enterprises. So, yeah, look, it's a tip of the hat to the government of Perth. Not everything that the government does is horrendous. Um, so, so you heard that, that here, listeners. Quickly yeah. record that soundbite. <laughs> yeah, and take it out of context whenever you possibly can. <laughs> 1967, uh, on January 24th, members of the first Australian task force in Vietnam make contact with the enemy for the first time in the area of Bien Hoa. Uh, Hoa. I've probably butchered that. Bien Hoa. January 25th in 1886, the first Assembly of the Federal Council of Australia was held in Hobart. 1900, state Labor politicians meet in Sydney to formally found the Federal Labor Party. Uh, You would have known that, Albo. We know you're listening. He's probably saying, well, duh, of course, I could have told you that. 1950, <laughs> the landing ship HMAS Tarakan explodes at Garden Island in Sydney, killing eight. Uh, what's a landing ship, DK? Uh, like a barge, basically. Oh, okay. Like a large barge. It's got, it's painted grey. Oh, Okay. 1998, American tourists Tom and Eileen Lonergan are left behind on their scuba dive near the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, yeah. Absolutely horrendous. Yeah, not a good way to go. Was I, it? I have, I've been to the reef really close to where they were um, and done some diving and stuff, and it's beautiful, but... Uh, the whole time, all I could think about was the fact <laughs> yeah. that these guys were like left out there and that, and and like it just fills me with horror. Like, yeah. absolutely, I think there was a film about it too that was released. Um, but yeah, just absolutely horrendous. I, and just the dawning on you, sort of like coming up and sort of thinking, oh, 
well, you know, maybe they've moved the boat or something. And there would be some point where you click in your head and you think, ah, they've forgotten us. <laughs> I mean, you, eh. horrendous is a good word. Uh, January 26, unsurprisingly, there's a couple on here. 1788, the first fleet landed in Sydney Cove. 1808, John MacArthur is arrested, sparking the Rum Rebellion, uh, where military officers supporting MacArthur arrest Governor Bly. 1928, Indigenous Australians protest, uh, Indigenous Australian protesters hold the first day of mourning. And 1943, the Defence Citizen Military Forces Act, 1943, is passed, which provided for the use of conscripts in the southwestern Pacific zone during the period of war. 1958, Australia's first and only nuclear reactor, HIFAR, goes, uh, that's an acronym, which I didn't write down, but. It'll be in the notes. Goes critical for the first time. A full power generation occurs in 1960. A flux Australian reactor. It's apparently what it stands for. Thank you. Uh, 1959, Darwin is granted city status. 1960, the first Australian of the Year awards uh, occur. 1966, the Beaumont children disappear, never to be found. So it was Jane Nat- uh, Natari Beaumont, Anna Kathleen Beaumont, and Grant Ellis Beaumont, uh, collectively referred to as the Beaumont children, uh, three siblings who disappeared from Glenelg Beach near Adelaide, South Australia. Just a nightmare for the, the family. Uh, never solved, never found. It was just... Uh, yeah, one of those famous crimes that sort of gets, you know, it's it's fame sort of sometimes distances yeah. it from the the horror that it is. Yeah, this is one of those ones that's like it'll never be solved, and no, no one will ever know. And it's just, it's what a tragedy. Yep. Yep. Exactly. 1971 in the capital city of Australia. Um, Four children, three adults were killed in the 1971 Canberra flood. Um, 1981, the Australian Institute of Sport is opened. 1994, a man fires two blank shots at, uh, he was Charles Prince of Wales at that stage in Sydney. There's an article in the LA Times, (coughs) excuse me. Uh, a student upset about the plight, and I'll just give you a couple of sample paragraphs. A student upset about the plight of Cambodian boat people charged a stage where Britain's Prince Charles was about to speak Wednesday night and fired two shots from a starter's pistol loaded with blanks before he was subdued. Police said they apprehended David King, 23, an Australian born uni student of Korean ancestry. Uh, King was tackled and quickly pinned down by politicians and security men. After the incident, Charles casually swept his hair back and continued the ceremony. So I do remember, well, yeah, because it wasn't that long, well, 1994, it depends how old you are. It wasn't that long ago. And I do remember seeing Charles's reaction to that and thinking, bloody hell, that's uh, that's pretty cool, calm and collected, given because 
if someone's running up to stage and fires two blanks from a starting pistol, it doesn't take much imagination to think, hmm, that could have been something else. Yeah, you got to give him props for his professionalism in that moment, you know? Yeah, exactly. January 27th, 1906, a cyclone damages Cairns and Innisfail in uh, Queensland. 1941, following the capture of Tobruk, two brigades of the 6th Australian Division under Major General Ivan Mackay, Mackay pursue the Italians westward and encounter an Italian rear guard at Derna. January 28th, 1915, the Sinai and Palestine campaign begins during the Middle Eastern Theatre of World War I. 1991, uh, the Royal Australian Navy clearance diving team departs Perth for Kuwait during the First Gulf War. Bit of a pity we've got a first down there, but yeah, it's January 28th. Uh, January 30th, what happened to January 29th? January 29th was a complete dud, so I've skipped it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go, listeners. Go and do something amazing on the 29th of January so you can make the list for next year. (laughs) January 30th on 1893, the Federal Bank collapses, starting the Australian banking crisis of 1893. So that involved the collapse of a considerable number of commercial banks and building societies and a general economic depression, which occurred at the same time as the US panic of 1893. So the background is that during the 80s, there'd been a speculative boom in the Australian property market. Hmm, he says. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. so that optimistic climate uh, there was, a hot, was, was fostered by the commercial banks. Hmm, he said again. And also led to the proliferation of non-bank institutions such as Building societies, uh, as they were operating in a free banking system, there was few legal restrictions on their operation. There was no central bank or government provided deposit guarantees. Uh, so consequently, these banks and related bodies lent extravagantly for property development in particular, but following the collapse of the land boom after 1888, a large number of enterprises that had borrowed money found themselves unable to repay these debts and mean to begin to declare bankruptcy. The banks and non-bank institutions came under increasing financial pressure and once the uh, Federal Bank of Australia, which was a private company, Despite its name, um, that's a bit cheeky, isn't it? Yeah, from what I could see, there was there was a politician who was in charge of it, but from what I could, my understanding of it, and happy to be corrected on this, was that it was basically a, a private uh, bank. So once it failed on thirtieth of January, um, that sort of underscored the full extent of the the crisis. Uh, so yeah, that was a. An interesting episode. Unfortunately, I don't know whether it was worthwhile um, the way we went with central banks and everything after that, but that's that's for another day. 1924 on January 30th, the first cabinet meeting is held at in Canberra at Yarra Lumla House. Now, this surprises me that it was this late. You know, 1901 we had Federation and you know, the first federal cabinet meeting. 
However, I think there's a few details I don't understand about this because I looked it up. The date said, yes, that's when it first happened, but I didn't understand how you could be running the government without the equivalent of a cabinet. So maybe it's something formal. So look, again, listeners, if you want to educate me, I'm always happy to um, always happy to be told. I guess one of those things where they didn't call it that beforehand, because I would think the same thing. Surely, I got confused. Yeah, surely you have to have, or maybe it's just the first time they all met together, which seems absolutely bonkers. But that's probably what it is. They'd never been in the same room together or something like that outside of Parliament. Who well, knows? that's that's reasonable. I, yeah, I just couldn't. Um, and look, to be perfectly honest, I didn't didn't dig beyond a few sources, but I couldn't get a satisfactory answer. Um, so I'm not going to make one up. Uh, January 31st, our final day, 1814, the holy dollar and dump go into circulation. So this is they, they needed coins for the new colony, particularly in New South Wales. And these were... Um, these were Spanish silver coins that they basically just put a big hole in the, the middle, took that bit out of the, the middle, put some, um, I think they call it crowning around it just to um, uh, modify it to show that it, was, uh, that it wasn't uh, the, the original one and it had been yeah, essentially uh, modified for use in the colonies. And yeah, they had the different values on there but yeah until they got you know british sterling coins but yeah so the holy dollars and and dumps uh go into circulation and they're very rare if you can get them i was was looking at a little bit there and because most of them got handed back in and melted down for bullion there's only something like oh it was something like 300 odd of the original I think 30 or forty thousand. so yeah one one recently sold for for half a million bucks, so yeah, mm. and they sometimes turn up in unusual, but in unusual spots. So yeah, yeah. So if you've got you know granddad's attic, go have a look because you might be sitting on literally a fortune. You might, you, you may well do. Uh, eighteen eighty on January thirty first, the Bulletin magazine is first published, and it ran until two thousand. And eight, so yeah, hundred and twenty-eight years. Damn good effort. Finally, in nineteen sixty-eight, on January thirty-first, Nauru declares independence from Australia. And after they got their independence, do you reckon they had a beer, DK? I reckon they would. I'm pretty damn thirsty. All right, so <clears throat> this is our 4X bottle top question. These two questions didn't come from a bottle top. Uh, and and oh, they're, they're, I've got two, but they're a little bit loaded. There's a bit to them. So from a giant prawn in Ballina to an enormous ram in Goldburn, what is considered Australia loves big things. What is considered the very first big thing in Australia? 
<laughs> this is a really hard one because it is not probably what you think. Oh, so I, damn. you'll get okay. Because I was going to get oh damn, I was going to immediately leap to the the big banana. It coughs. That's what most people think it is. Oh, the big banana. Give that's me a second chance. And that's been spouted that it is the first, but that was built in 1964. There was something else that was really big. That beats it by 12 months. Have another oh, go. by 12 months? God. Yep. Is it the big pineapple? No, it's not the big pineapple. I don't know when the big pineapple was built. I feel like it was in the 80s or 90s. It is kind of obscure. It's called uh. the Big Scotsman, and it adorns Scotty's Motel. Uh, in Medellin in South Australia. It's been there since 1963. So I'd never heard of it before this. I stumbled across this trivia question because my answer would have been the big banana as well. Yeah. Uh, But no, it's a bit obscure. Some little motel and it's still there. Big Scotsman. So I... Don't know if you looked up a picture. It's it's literally a a, a big Scotsman. Yep. <laughs> it's yep. It's the big a big Scotsman. He's got uh, bagpipes in his hands uh, and sort of a, a a big hat. Yeah. How um, have we not seen pictures of that with people positioned in such a way that they're looking up under his quilt with a thumbs up? <laughs> he's sort of surely he's, he's standing like on the building, so you can't really get underneath him. But I'll send you a picture quickly. Um, <laughs> so you can see what I mean. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Oh, okay. I can see what you mean. So look for the yeah. look. We'll we'll uh. I think hopefully include a link, but for listeners at home, it is that traditional uh, Scotsman in formal garb playing the bagpipe with the, it looks like a, a military hat on there. Uh, and the corner is cut out of a building and there's a pedestal uh, in that corner and the big Scotsman is standing on that pedestal. Though I reckon you could climb up there. And yeah, yeah you could, you could, yeah. <laughs> he has. He's also changed colour a couple of times over the years as well. Yeah, I'll send you this other. So at the moment, he's sort of he's got a a, a tartan on and a green coat, uh, and the tartans. I don't know. It's it's. Uh, how would you describe it? Oh no, that picture's not working. Uh, it's sort of a, a, a green and red, and in another picture, yeah. it's a red and blue. So, uh, so I'm, I'm assuming it's painted. So, yes. Oh yeah. wow, that's a that's a very it is, it that's is a quite very a, quite different a contrast. Yeah. So he's ah. had a couple of couple of outfits over the years. So, oh, I wonder if there's a I wonder if there's many because look, I don't pretend to understand the the Scottish tartans. But I wonder if there's a meaning to why they've changed the tartans. Whether there's different owners of the hotel, whether they're um, sending some sort of subliminal secret message to viewers of the Big Scotsman. 
Oh, that's oh, that's okay. That's an interesting one. All right. The next question is this, and I'm hoping you'll get this one right because this one's a little bit tricky as well. The first mobile phone went on sale in Australia in which year? Now, to clarify, to be specific, I'm not talking the big, you know, uh, the the car phones oh, yeah, yeah. or the large briefcase, really unwieldy. I'm talking first proper mobile phone that was a handheld unit. Like you only Nokia, needed one hand to use it. Like a Nokia or Ericsson, that type of thing, that sort of flip phony type thing. Yeah. They were a little bit different to that. But, yes, right, that sort sure. of first generation of genuine mobile phone. Oh, I know the type that you, you, you mean. You, you, you're essentially holding like a, a half brick that's got a slight um, divot curved out of it. They're usually, they're usually grey. Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I exactly. Know, I know That's the exactly the phone about. I'm talking about, and oh. it's known the one G, the first generation amps phone, which stood for Advanced Mobile Phone System. Right. What year? Which year was this released? Any bonus points if you can tell me how much it costs? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I'm just going to cast my mind back and let me see i'm going to say that it was released in australia in 1992 and in that year it cost 2000 $300. That's my guess. Am I your, even close? Your price is pretty co close for 1992, but you're in the wrong decade. Wow. Wow, I'm in the wrong decade. Bloody hell. Okay, so it has it has to be in the 80s. It can't be earlier than the yep, the 80s. It's in the 80s. Um, oh, okay. All right. Well, I did I didn't guess that, but let me now that you've given me that information. Oh, that surprises me. Then I'll, give, I'll give you extra points if you can tell me who the uh, carrier was. What was the name of the carrier? Oh, God. Um, now, it, it, to me, it has to be between 85 and 90. If it's earlier than 85, I'll be absolutely astounded. So I'm No, gonna... I'll give you that. It's between 85 and 90. Yeah, yeah. Who the carrier was? God, I'm just trying to think who the carriers were back then. Um, Telstra, but there was some little weird one back then. Put me out of my misery, DK. I can't get it. <laughs> it was in 1987. Yeah. And the carrier was Telecom, which became oh, Telstra. Of course. It became Telstra. Right. Uh, so Telecom is what it was before then, and it was sold... In 1987, for the cool, cool price of four thousand two hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! In 1987, which I am frantically rushing to try and punch that into the <laughs> into the into uh, the the, CPI the calculator. inflation calculator, <laughs> yeah. which which we seem to reach for quite a 
quite a bit on this show because we have the we have the the history and have the things in the the past, and it's it's always interesting just to see how much the inflation changes. Oh, so. $4,250 in 1987 to today's value is <laughs> an absolute, well, it's actually 2022 because yeah. they haven't done it yet, but uh, is $11,650. Wow. So not a small amount of money uh, for Essentially, as you described it, it's basically a literally the size of a brick uh, and sort of has a notch cut out that you put to your head. Yeah. Big aerial. Uh, at its peak, though, these phones were so popular. At its peak, there were 2 million of them getting around Australia. Wow. So. Wow, 2 million in Australia. Two million in Australia, which is absolutely phenomenal, considering that astounds uh, me. Yep, yep. There's two million uh, that that of the of these phones. So I don't think they were all made by the same company, but yeah, absolutely incredible. So I, I, we, if you had asked me to guess, that I I would I would have been around about the hundred and fifty thousand. No way I would have got close to two million. Yep. So the Australia, uh, we can be really backwards with some things, but apparently when it comes to telecommunications, uh, we've very much been right there on the forefront of uh, the state of the art since the beginning, which is pretty cool. Huh. Oh, so questions. Interesting questions. On that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedbacks or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian... We are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her. (laughs) See ya, DK. (laughs) See ya.